So you want to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be beginning in chapter 5, verse 8. We'll go actually all the way. I'll, I'll touch on the entirety of chapter 6. I know your bulletins or your sermon notes say 6-9. That's really kind of the official end, but I will touch on, on a few verses after that. Um, when, we began, when we began the book of Ecclesiastes a number of weeks ago, we're actually going to be pretty much halfway through it at this point. I suggested that it is arguably the most contemporary, uh, the most contemporarily relevant book in the Bible. It is, pro- and, and the more we go through this, the more we, we look at it, the more I think it's true. It is perhaps the most relevant book in the Bible. And, and this is just, I don't have any data to prove it. I just know that every time I listen to the radio or watch TV or read something on the Internet, I'm going, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. And I keep saying that over and over again. Now, maybe I say that with every book we happen to be in, but I do think that I'm saying it more in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes confronts us. It confronts us with what is ultimate, What is of greatest value? And it challenges us to address that question. What is of of greatest value? Today, if you are listening or you are here today and you are not a believer, the book of Ecclesiastes confronts us and informs that you will never be satisfied with the promises made by society and the world at large. They are telling you that if you just had a little bit more, then that would then tip you over the edge, and then you can rest, and then you can be satisfied, then you will be joyful, then your life will be complete. And the book of Ecclesiastes tells us what is ultimately true, and that is no matter how much you have, no matter how much you succeed, no matter how much you gain, no matter how well you prosper, no matter, no matter the promotion, you will always be wanting more. And if you are here today or listening and you are a believer, that is you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, we are confronted by Ecclesiastes because it confronts us with the reality that we are easily distracted. We may say, yes, God is ultimate, and we may truly believe it, but it doesn't take many shiny things to get our gaze shifted in a different direction. And Ecclesiastes calls us and challenges us and reminds us that there are a lot of shiny things, but they are not ultimate. And so one of the things that we, uh, we learned Last week, says that when you, we were told to guard our steps when you go into the house of God and to draw near to God, to draw near and to listen to God is the wise course of action. So church, I'm going to now ask you to listen to the word of God in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse, verse, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, through Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 9. Church, listen to the word of the living God. If you see in a province oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to set them than to see them with his eyes. Sweet is the sleep, sweet 
Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, I have seen... What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. So just to bring everybody up to speed, let me give you a a very, very brief review of where we have been. The author, last week we talked a lot about when you come into the house of the Lord, what is it? He describes appropriate worship. But I would also suggest that this entire book is about worship. And much of it is about the worship of material possessions. And the worship of material possessions led the author into a digression that we saw last week on true worship. In other words, in what or in whom do we look to for fulfillment? Where do we look for fulfillment? What do we see as ultimate? And so the author has described, we either worship the things of this material world or perhaps even even this material world or we worship the God of heaven. So this book, Ecclesiastes, has at its heart the idea of worship. And what we saw last week was the idea or uh, the author led us into true worship. That's where we've been. What do we worship? Do we worship possessions, material goods, promotion, status, that type of thing? Or do we worship the God who made us? That's really where the book of Ecclesiastes is. That's where we've been. It will probably remain a big part of where we go in the future. But let me give you a little bit of preview of where we're going to go today. Um, So the preview today is, well, it's a sandwich. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And there it is. So you guys are already hungry. So here's the sandwich. Basically, it is this. The love of money does not satisfy. We can look at the two, the top and the bottom part of the sandwich. Chapter 5, verse 10. Well, look what it says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. That's one section. Look at verse, um, chapter 6, verse 7. The end. I'm sorry, chapter... Um,
Let me move up to uh, 6 verse... um, I lost my place. I'll just... I'll I'll give you chapter 6 verse 3. But all his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And in between these two... I guess you could say the top bun and the bottom bun is the meat. And so we are going to look at the love of money provides no satisfaction. That's at the beginning. At the end, the love of money provides no satisfaction. And in between, we are going to see what is the source of our satisfaction. And we will see that the source of satisfaction comes from knowing and fearing the living God. The love of money does not satisfy, but in between these two pieces of bread, if you will, when God is ultimate, money and possessions are actually a means of great joy. What we are going to see, once again, is that the empty promises of material gain profit nothing, but the promises of the living God will provide a source of satisfaction. So that's how our text is structured. Let's go ahead and take a look at it in verse 8. We are going to begin with this big theme of systemic oppression. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and a violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land In every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Systemic oppression. Solomon now returns to the theme of oppression. He actually began this theme, uh, addressing this theme way back in chapter 3, verse 16, but also really brings it out in chapter 4, verse 1. He had talked about injustice and oppression, but now what he is informing us is that this oppression, that this injustice is not limited to individuals taking advantage of their neighbor, but rather there, it's not just individuals, but rather there are whole structures that are committed to this injustice and oppression. So it's not just your individual neighbor or it's not just some some guy down the road. But rather, there are systems that are committed to injustice and oppression. That is, there is a hierarchical component to injustice. Government By the way, government has been given to us by God to maintain his just order. Government is God's instrument to bring about or to to maintain his just order. Government is a God-ordained structure. But government, like the individual human, has has succumbed to corruption. See, the whole system, the author is saying, and I would agree with, the whole system is run by people who love money. Greed produces injustice. Just as greed produced injustice between individuals, so now greed produces a a much more hierarchical injustice. In other words, this, the system is broke because the people who make up the system are broke. The bottom line is fallen humanity get, in our system, get elected to various positions, but they're broken. They are fallen human beings and they gather together with other fallen human beings. So the author says, don't be amazed when you see the whole entire system broken because it is is populated by broken men and women. And it's not talking about a specific type of government. So this can be free enterprise or communism or socialism or even anarchy. It's broken because it's made up of broken people. So don't be surprised when you see injustice in government. It is because there are broken people running the government. Whatever government you live under. The whole system is broke. 
The command to love your neighbor as yourself gets forgotten. So do not be amazed, the author says. Basically, he says this, officials watch out for one another. Officials look out for one another. Perhaps it's even a lower-ranking bureaucrat cannot serve in a manner that does not benefit the one above him. So, so everybody's kind of in it for themselves, protecting themselves. Perhaps a contemporary, at least in, in our country, I, I would, I don't think I'm stepping out of line, but let me just say a classic example of government looking out for government is the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. The very fact that this crime is not front page news with every perpetrator's name bold listed is simply because there's a lot of powerful government people from all over, from governments all over the world who raped young women. They will not be listed. There, I, I've heard that perhaps they're going to get some, I guarantee you, they will work to protect one another. They're looking out for one another. Don't be amazed. But this is gain for a land. In every way, a king is committed to cultivated fields. This is actually a very, very challenging uh, sentence to, to translate. But I, what I ended up settling on is here, it's an ironic statement. Ironically, the king receives the product of the laborer. So you have king at the top and you have laborer at the bottom. And the king needs the laborer whom the system he has installed oppresses. But the king needs the laborer. He needs the farmer. If the farmer doesn't farm, the king himself doesn't eat. So a rather ironic statement. Let me state this. Government officials are accountable to God. And it doesn't matter what type of government system you have. Those who are in charge of a government are accountable to the Most High God. Even if it is a totally God-denying form of government, their denial of Almighty God and their refusal to acknowledge, acknowledge Him does not excuse them. They are still accountable to God Almighty. Pharaoh was accountable to God Almighty. Pontius Pilate, Jesus said, don't you know that any power you have comes from the one above? Pontius Pilate, you are accountable to God Almighty. And we can only pray that more and more men and women who serve in our governments acknowledge that there is a God to whom they will give an account. Every government official will give an account for their actions before God Almighty. So if you see oppression in a province, (laughs) don't be amazed at this. These systems are made up of broken men and women. That is not an excuse. They are still accountable to God Almighty. So then now the, the author, the preacher, moves on. And he informs us here that satisfaction, he's going to start talking about the issue of satisfaction, that the topic of the government officials is going to now um, bring him back to a, a topic he began earlier, and that is the topic of envy. And what we're going to see is that for a person to be satisfied, satisfaction is extra. That's what I've titled this section. The root cause of oppression we see back in chapter 4, verse verses 4 and 6, the root cause of oppression, the root cause of injustice, whether it be one individual to another or whether it be a a government official, the root cause of this oppression is 
envy. And the author is now going to turn his attention to the worship of riches. There is he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. And the author now is going to turn his attention, and for the rest of this message, he's going to focus on the worship of riches. And he's going to inform that the worship of riches will never satisfy. Satisfaction does not come from the accumulation of material possessions. Money itself is a false god. It will never satisfy. It promises to satisfy. Every commercial you see, everything you you hear, every program you watch, that just a little bit more, then I would be satisfied. And that brings us, the author is going to give us four reasons why money does not satisfy. And the first reason is greed. Greed. He who loves the money will not be satisfied. I think it's a fairly famous statement, and I don't know who originally made it, but it probably gets updated regularly. Some rich person gets asked, how much is enough? And the answer used to be a million dollars more. A million's nothing now. Now I'm pretty sure it's a billion dollars more. I just need a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Then I will be happy. But the problem with, with trusting in wealth for satisfaction is that you will never have enough. Greed is the issue. Profit will never satisfy. If I just had a little bit more, if I just had a a nicer car, once I get my, I'll be happy once I get that nicer car, once I establish that college fund for my kids, once I get a, a secure retirement, then that will be enough. That's the lie and that's the siren's call of the, the love of wealth and the love of stuff and that it is, it is never enough. It only fosters the desire for more. And this is vanity. So the first reason why the worship or the idolization of material possessions never satisfied is because it offers the false promise that at a certain point you're going to have enough. But the lie is it's never enough. And then the second reason we see is that there are always, there are going to be more takers. I think I'm, I'm two slides ahead of advanced two slides, Sawyer. There we go. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Next reason why possessions do not satisfy is because the more you get, the more takers there are going to be. The more people are going to want your stuff. As wealth increases, so do those who want a piece of it. Let's face it. The more you make, remember we just got done talking about greedy and unjust governments, they're going to want a bigger piece of your pie. And the more you make, you're going to need to start paying more employees. You're going to have to start paying more and more people. They're going to start wanting a a piece of what you have accumulated. You're going to have to hire security. And all of a sudden, family members whom you have never heard of are going to come out of the woodwork. I don't know this for a fact, but... I can probably state it with a a certain level of certainty. I think it was a a week ago. Wasn't the lottery like one and a half billion dollars? And somebody won it. I think it was a single individual. I guarantee you this. That person has new family members they never (laughs) knew about. I guarantee it. Hey, I'm your... (laughs) The more you have, 
the more you're going to have people wanting a piece of what you have. That would be, and all the, the, the preacher and Ecclesiastes, all the wealthy person can do is watch as takers take. So that's the second reason. The first reason is it's never enough. The second reason is the more you have, the more people are going to try to uh, get a piece of what you have. And third reason is there's no rest. Despite his promises, if, if you only got a little bit more, man, then you could just sleep in a nice, comfortable bed. Then you could rest and kick back and relax and everything would be great. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. At some point, wealth whispers that you will rest and sleep in a comfortable bed if you just get a little bit more. But the worries that accompany this prosperity often deprives of sleep. Peace of mind, church, is not guaranteed by greater abundance. In fact, it may result in perpetual worry. And the fourth and final reason that the author gives for the vanity, the emptiness of accumulating material possessions is the reality that you can just lose it all. It causes us a grievous evil that his wealth kept to his own hurt. He has been keeping his wealth when he ought to have been keeping his neighbor. He has hoarded his wealth and now he loses it due to some misfortune. We don't know exactly why, but for whatever reasons, maybe it is a natural disaster, maybe the stock market crashes, maybe somebody squanders it, he's hired a, a bad accountant or what have you, but due to some misfortune, especially in the days in which Solomon wrote, you might have um, put all of your treasures and it's like I'm going to ship it over across this particular uh, uh, section of the ocean to a, a buyer over there who's going to purchase it and is going to make me a wealthy individual and the ship sinks. There were no insurance companies in those days. You lost everything. He has hoarded his wealth and now loses it due to some misfortune. And now this person is unable to help his neighbor and unable to help his family. He has nothing to pass on. The surplus that he has stashed away does not survive his death. Calamity strikes and there is nothing to pass on. His end is as his beginning. Naked he came into the world and naked he leaves. This comes from the book of Job. He has nothing to show. Even the loss of his fortune does not lead him to abandon this course of action, and the result is that he eats in separation of God, frustration, and anger. All that he worked for did not satisfy. I think in your notes, I didn't. I, this isn't from me. Somebody else wrote this. There is no contented consumption. And Derek Kidner writes, if there is anything worse than the addiction of money, that. that if there is anything worse than the addiction money brings is the emptiness it leaves. And so the author begins with this um, greed-caused oppression by uh, hierarchical structures. And then he gets us back to our level, back to you and me, and he says, listen, the accumulation of stuff is vanity, it is empty, it is pointless, and here's the reason why, and he gives us four reasons why. One of the great things about the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is he takes us to these dark places, but then he doesn't leave us there. Well, he leaves us there for a while. But I have been encouraged by how often he brings a little balance and the next section is the meat, if you will, of this, um, of this section of scripture. He begins to talk about God's good gift. In verse 18, church, how sad it is 
How sad that people work and strive for what God has already given as a gift. And I want you to note the shift. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. So now all of a sudden, uh, and we've seen the preacher do this before, he now says that all the things you toil for are good and that they bring enjoyment. Wait, what happened? I thought he just said those things are useless and pointless and meaningless. Well, what's happened is very, very simple. You will see that God is now present in the text. What was absent before, God's name has not been mentioned. But now God is, is mentioned like four or five times. found that it be as good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice, this is the gift of God. The difference between these, the one person enjoying his possessions and the things that have been given to him and the one who isn't is the fact that one recognizes that God is ultimate and the other believes that his possessions are ultimate. That's the difference. And how sad it is that people work and strive for what God has given as a gift. Now there is joy and fulfillment in one's toil under the sun. And the The reason for this is that God is present. The author writes, I have seen what is good and is fitting. Man must get his enjoyment from his possession as a good gift of God. And once again, the preacher informs that eating and drinking can be items of great enjoyment and they are commended. Get stuff. Have good food. Probably on Thursday, many of us are going to be eating really, really well. Enjoy it. It is a gift of God. So money and vacations and promotions and sex and new homes and and, uh, all of these things, these are the blessings that God has given to his people. Just realize that none of them are ultimate. When they become ultimate, then there is a problem when they are seen as the good gifts of a good God and that he is ultimate and these are just his wonderful blessings then there is joy and there is fulfillment. Possessions are viewed as gifts of God. They are not ends in and of themselves. God, and, and here's the other amazing thing. This, was, this is a new, something new that the preacher adds in. God has given wealth and possessions. We've already seen that before previously. A few weeks ago we saw that. He's repeating himself again. That all of the the good things that we have, the cars we have, the homes we live in, the the friends that we have, these are all our spouses. If we have spouses, our friendships, all of these things are good things. And they are given to us by God. Then note this, and the power to enjoy them. God even gives us the ability to enjoy his good gifts. Possessions then are viewed as gifts of God. They are not ends in and of themselves. And God not only gives the wealth as a gift, but the ability to enjoy the gift. I I was reminded of the manna that came down from heaven and the people in the wilderness um, did not believe God, so they hoarded the manna. And it was rotten. They did, not in, they did not even get a chance to take advantage of it and they did not enjoy it because they did not believe God. We spend our days working and toiling and sweating for, for what God desires to give to his people if we seek it in a manner that he is graciously determined to provide. The world that God created is full of many rich gifts. But the power to enjoy them does not rely in the gift itself. And this is why it's always useless to worship the gifts instead of the giver. And so on the one hand, we have the individual who accumulates wealth and is never satisfied and the other person who accumulates wealth but sees them as not ultimate. But God is ultimate and God not only has blessed them with such 
wonderful things, but gives them the ability to enjoy them. Let me draw a quick gospel connection here that I think, um, I hope will be helpful. How sad it is for people to strive and work for what God has given as a gift. Peace with God through the forgiveness of our rebellion against him has been graciously provided by God in his time for our joy. Peace with God through the forgiveness of our rebellion against him has been graciously provided by God in his time for our joy. But oftentimes we don't rest and enjoy that gift and we replace it with toil. Let me do enough stuff and then God will be pleased with me. Let me, let me work a little bit harder and pray a little bit longer and go to church a little bit extra and stay a little bit longer and then God will be pleased with me. How sad it is for people to strive and to work for what God has given as a gift. And this includes salvation. And unfortunately, all religious systems other than Christianity require that we work and that we toil hard to merit God's pleasure. Or perhaps we might even believe the lie that simply by my existence, God is pleased. After all, I am a child of God. You are not, after all, a child of God. We are all God's creation, but we are not all God's sons and daughters. For that, we need to be born into his family. We are, the Bible says, by nature, children of wrath. What we need is we need a new family. We need a new birth. We need to be born again. We need to be adopted by God and brought into his family. And this change of family is not achieved by toil or achievement on our own. It is not due to the fact that you have walked on your knees up to some cathedral or that you have um, uh, starved yourself or uh, deprived yourself of some joy or some pleasure or that you have done enough good, good things, that you've prayed long enough, read enough uh, verses out of your holy book that maybe now God will be pleased with me. I think... been so impressed by Exodus chapter 20 giving of the Ten Commandments what does God say I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery you shall have no other gods before me note and then he said nine other things note before he gave them the command of what they were to do He had already delivered them out of slavery. He had already delivered them out of bondage. He didn't say, okay, have no other gods before me first. You guys are in Egypt. Have no other gods. Uh, Don't steal. Don't kill each other. Keep the Sabbath. And if you do that well enough, I'll deliver you out of the land of Egypt. Then I'll deliver you out of the land of Egypt. No, I've delivered you out of the land of Egypt. Church, Christ has saved you. If you are part of this family, he has saved you. He loved you and died for your sins. Now, enjoy. Let's honor God. We do not earn God's merit and God's favor by by toiling and working. The change of family is not achieved by toil or achievement of our own. Let me tell you this. Work is necessary. It is necessary. Work and merit is necessary for us to have favor with God. But here's the truth. It's not your work. Christ did the work. Christ's merit is now credited to your account. You are favorable to God because Christ has bestowed his righteousness upon us. It is God's good gift and he gives us the power to enjoy it. Church, rest and salvation that Christ has secured. The preacher goes on and talks a little bit about an unsatisfied appetite 
beginning in chapter 6, verse 1, and he returns to life under the sun and its attendant evils. And here we discover that God is sovereign and rules over those who refuse to honor him. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and it is a grievous evil. So there is this life under the sun and we discover, here's the amazing thing, that God is sovereign. He rules over those who refuse to honor him. God is God whether you acknowledge him or not. God gave that person wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing. And yet he has no power to enjoy them. And I have to admit that I wrestled with this. I wrestled with this passage quite a bit. God gives wealth and possession and honor, but doesn't give the person the ability to enjoy them. And I thought to myself, well, that seems kind of cruel. You give them all this good stuff, but you don't give them the ability to enjoy them. That doesn't fit the biblical picture of the good and generous God that we see throughout Scripture. But I think the truth here is that in this picture, this person has everything a person could want, but is still unsatisfied. And that is a means that God uses to draw us to himself. That I have all of this stuff, and yet I'm still not satisfied. There must be something more. And that is God's purpose in giving all of these good things and yet not the power to enjoy them so that we realize, I need something else. I need more than another new car and I need more than um, more, more relationships and I need something more than a purpose and a cause. I need something greater than myself. I wonder what that is. There must be something more. God is taking that person to an end of himself, bringing him to the end of himself where he begins to look up and say, there must be something that is beyond this world because I have everything that this world has. And it's still not enough. There must be something beyond this world. And then the author, the preacher, gives us a case study, a man with a long life and abundant children. We should note that long life and lots of kids would have been seen as a great blessing by those living in the ancient Near East. But despite all of these blessings, this man does not receive a proper burial. Now, Maybe that's not a big deal to to many in Western culture. But the blessings, but Semitic people um, during this time and and beyond viewed a proper burial as essential. I mean, if you lived a good life and you weren't buried properly, that would have been a curse. A good life, if followed by a good death, was represented in a good burial. But here we find a miserable life and an unsatisfactory death. And the author, the preacher, compares this to a stillborn birth. In other words, the birth is pointless. It doesn't lead to life. But the man illustrated lived and his life was pointless and he returns to darkness. He was alive, but he truly never lived. Now this is a shocking comparison. The point is not to minimize the tragedy of a child who does not survive birth, but to emphasize the tragedy of life lived under the sun, outside of God's peace and presence. That is, that is a tragedy. To have all that the world would want and not have God is a true tragedy. That's the author's point. So, quick summary. The man has pursued consumption, but he is powerless to, but they are, but his, um, his accumulation of goods he is powerless to, they are powerless to satisfy his appetite because only God can satisfy his appetite. Through his word, through worship, through prayer, through his abiding spirit, he satisfies his people. And if you're wrestling with these things, and let's face it, sometimes we go through some bleak periods of time. 
I'll just suggest a prayer. Lord, you know that I feel utterly empty. Help me to not run away from this emptiness, but offer to you. Teach me today that you are enough, and by your grace, enable me to be joyful in the peace and the joy that you've given me in Christ. I am not saying that we are always going to be happy, smiling, and and light. Sometimes we're going to struggle. Maybe you've struggled today. Maybe you struggled this week. Maybe you felt utterly angry, empty. I hope that we will be able to cast our emptiness and cast it upon Christ and that he would teach us that he is enough and that he would enable us to be joyful in what we have in Christ. Our text ends with a very and I'm not going to go through the entire I'm not going to go all the way through, through the chapter but I, I find it interesting all the toil of man is for his mouth yet his appetite is not satisfied for what advantage has the wise man over the fool and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living and then he goes on and says whatever has come to be has already been named and what is known And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Whatever has been named has already been named, including man. That is the word Adam. Our name reminds us that we are but dust. Adam was made out of the dust and to dust he returned. Our name reminds us that we are but dust We come from dust and we will return to dust. And I know we try to make a name for ourselves. And when usually that is done, um, uh, the name we try to make is one that portrays virility and strength and status. But we have a name that reminds us of our frailty. This frail creature, you and me, stand in contrast to the mighty creator, the one who is unformed, uncreated, and eternal. We are weak creatures passing through life like a mist. We'll be gone after a a few meaningless days. And yet, from dust we were and dust we will return, and yet we serve a living and almighty God who gives value and worth to every waking moment that we have. And in the moment that we wake in eternity beyond, there will be meaningful life for eternity because we are in um, a relationship with the living God who created us. I want to close with this and I, and I have a, a, a rather famous painting. Um, let's see if we can bring that, um, that painting up. There it is. This is called The Money Lender and His Wife. It, it's it's an amazing portrait. It's a Renaissance. I think the name of the author is Matsy. I could be wrong there. But you will notice here the money, the money lender has uh, a pile of coins and he's looking at one very intently. He has a scale. He is weighing it all out. What's of interest to us in this picture is his wife and her gaze upon the coins that he is counting. Perhaps what is important here is the book that she is reading. It is likely a Bible or some devotional book because it portrays the virgin and her child. And she is distracted from the reading of Scripture to gaze at the glitter of the coin in her husband's hand. And I think that portrays many of us. We are distracted by our devotion to Christ, by all that glitters. Peace with God is found in the work that he accomplishes through his son, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 tells us this. Love the Lord your God with all of your, 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And Matthew chapter 6.24 tells us this. You cannot love God in riches. We are told to love God with all of our being. And Jesus tells us you can't love God and riches. I think this picture is just an incredible illustration of those two things. In church, Christianity seeks to destroy the idol of money as our source of satisfaction and establish in its place the reality that money is a blessing of God. But dissatisfaction keeps calling us back. We are dust despite our claims to strength. In contrast to this frailty stands the Almighty God. God does the work that satisfies. He draws us to himself. He is the one in whom we find all satisfaction. Today, church, is Jesus King. Is our mind fixed? Like the book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes upon the author and perfecter of your faith. Where are our eyes fixed, church? You can answer that question. Where are my eyes fixed? I know that in our heart, we love to have our eyes fixed on that devotional book, but oh, there are certain things that draw our attention away. And the author of Ecclesiastes says, keep your nose in the, in the book. Keep your nose and keep your eyes fixed upon Christ. Jesus said this, so I think it has some authority. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. Father, you are gracious and good to us. And Lord, I confess, and I'm sure many here would join with me in this confession, that I am easily distracted. There's a lot of glittery things, Lord God, that pull my attention away from you. Lord, my heart is, I want to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but the reality is sometimes, Lord, I'm drawn away by flashy temporal things. Lord, I thank you for all the good things that you've given to me and that you've given to this church, and I pray that others would join me in that thanksgiving. Lord, you've given us places to live, roofs over our head. Lord, I have a warm bed on a cold night. That is your gift to me. And I thank you for those things. I pray that none of those gifts become ultimate. Whether we have much or whether we have little, Lord God, I pray that none of those things become ultimate and the source that drives us, that you would be ultimate in our lives, and that we would seek you first and your kingdom, and knowing that you will not only provide us with good things, but the power to enjoy those good things. Be merciful to us this day. In Christ's name, amen.